Okay, so we're starting our series on the Psalms today, and we're going to do all 150 of them. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit of fun. Uh, now, uh, it's not just because I'm Chinese, and it's not just because I love food, but I reckon the Psalms are like yum cha, right? <laughs> you know what that yum cha is like? It's lots of really lovely morsels, and, and it's great, but then afterwards you just don't feel like you've eaten properly. You know, you, you, you get the, the nice uh, spring rolls that come, and then suddenly the custard tart comes, and then the barbecue pork buns, and then those crazy little bits, you know, the chicken feet and all that sort of stuff comes. It, it's just all over the place. And sometimes, I think for a lot of us, the Psalms are a bit like that. They're a bit all over the place, you don't know what to do with them, there no, seems to be no order. Now, look, I, I suck at poetry, right? And so, half the time when, when people say poems to me, if I just blink a little bit, I, I don't get them. Uh, we read them at church each week, and uh, I think we're up to about Psalm 54 now, after our series of reading through them. And, and I, honestly, if you ask me after the service, what did we read? What was it about? I have no idea. And yet, I know it's really important that the New Testament quotes them a lot. It's a huge book. It's important. But I think half the time we use them as fillers. Uh, so James Ward's here, right? part of the public meetings team from last year, which I was part of. And we're thinking, OK, we've got three weeks left. Right, we, we've got to do some part of the writings, and so okay, let's do the Psalms. And and it, it's almost like when we've got nothing else to think about, then let's do the Psalms or something. Well, I hope that'll change your thinking today, and hopefully, I'll give you a framework for understanding these beautiful songs from the Bible, these lyrics that change the world. So, with framework, the first thing I want to say is that context makes all the difference. Right. That's the most important thing to say. That is, for a lot of us, we think the Psalms are about ourselves, we, we know what they're about and all that sort of stuff. But I think as you listen to the Psalms, as you read them, the first thing you notice is that they're Israel's Psalms. As you start reading them, you get to read about the promises that were made to that man Abraham, the forefather of the nation Israel. As you read the Psalms, you, you read about Israel being taken out of Egypt, in the Exodus, as you read the Psalms, you hear about them wandering in the desert. As you read the Psalms, you hear about them getting the law of God. As you read a bit more, you, you read about them entering the land of Canaan. As you read the Psalms a bit more, you hear about them being expelled from the land by the rivers of Babylon and all that. So firstly, the thing I want to say is that the, the, the first context I want to think about is that they're the Psalms of Israel. And yet, as you keep on reading them, you find that one figure in Israel's history dominates these songs. And that's King David, of course. So rightly, they're known as the Psalms of David. Even though the, the phrase of David only really occurs about 90 times in the Psalms. But as you read them, they're about his kingship. They're about God's kingship. That's what they're about. They really are the Psalms of David. And yet we know that, they're, that David is a flawed king. You know that he's stuffed up. You know that what happened after him stepped up. And, and so the whole Old Testament actually looked forward to a time when the fortunes of David are going to be restored. And it's like that with the Psalms as well. It's an incredible paradox, actually. So that when you read the Psalms, you're taken back to the world of the Old Testament, back to Israel's history. And yet, very much so, you're taking off into their future. You're taking off from their point of view to a time when the kingdom of the Lord's anointed is established and his enemies are defeated. A time when the law is going to be on the hearts and minds of the speaker. 
a time to use some of the phrases in the Psalms is when Mount Zion is going to be the joy of the whole earth. So there's the context, there's the framework. It's Israel's son, particularly David, but yet they're forward-looking. The second thing, I think, to help us get our bearings in these psalms, I think, is actually to say that they're not a random collection of, of psalms, actually. They have some order. Uh, we're in MasterChef season at the moment, and Adam Leal, the, 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 the last winner of um, MasterChef, he's actually released a new cookbook called Two Asian Kitchens. And, and he says that bad cookbooks are just really a collection of recipes random all over the place. Right? But he says good cookbooks tell a story. And so his cookbook, titled Two Asian Kitchens, is a movement from traditional Asian cooking to modern Asian cooking. So every recipe you look at, you, you see that movement and you feel it and you, you see it. So that's what a good organised book looks like. And I think the Psalms are like that as well. It actually goes somewhere, moves somewhere. And if you're one who reads your Bible regularly, hopefully you'll pick that up. Actually, let's just survey who, who reads their Bible regularly here? Who's got a Bible reading plan? Okay, that's some of you. For the rest of you, you need to do it, right? Like, I reckon if you spend three, four years of university and you don't read through the Bible at least once, I reckon you shouldn't get your degree. No, sorry, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, like, it, it really is that important to actually get to read it over and over and over again. But for those of you who read your Bible, hopefully you pick this up. Uh, I, I use a system called the One Year Bible, and so you read a little bit of the Old Testament, a little bit of the New Testament, uh, a couple of Psalms each day and a proverb, right? So you go through the Psalms at least a couple of times a year and one of the things that you pick up is that there's a general shape to them. And the first thing that you pick up is that it actually moves from sadness and distress to joy. There's a dominant movement. As you read through Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, they're Psalms of lament. They're Psalms of distress and suffering and, and Psalms that actually cry out, give me some relief. And yet as you go towards the end of the Psalms, Psalm 144, right through to Psalm 150. Those seven psalms particularly are poems of praise, songs of praise. Hallelujah is the note. Praise the Lord. That's one thing you'll notice. The second thing that you'll notice that's closely tied together with that is that it, there's a movement between David being king to God as king. So the first king that you'll meet is actually in Psalm 2 and it's King David. And the last king that you're going to meet in Psalm 149, it's Yahweh, it's the Lord, it's God himself who's king. And so those are the two general things that you actually get. A movement between distress and joy and from David being king and God as king. And like I say, they're closely tied together. Now, what we're going to do for the next mm, 10 minutes or so is that we're going to drill down a little bit further that general broad picture and we're going to look at 150 Psalms, right? Which means that if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you will get completely bored. So, can you get out your Bible? And if you don't have one, can you just look a little bit helpless? So the generous people who are sitting around you, they'll pass their Bible to you, or their spare Bible, or they'll just sidle up to you and sit next to you. Because you need to open up to Psalm 1 now, okay? So look around, get your Bibles open, Psalm 150. And if you've got those electronic things, right, get a real Bible. <laughs> Sorry? A little bit down? Yep, okay. That better? Okay. Uh, so, you want to make sure that, that you've got a Bible that you can flip and you can look at. Okay, you got that there. Everyone's got one. That's really important. Uh, so, you've got to juggle a few things. You've got to juggle your lunch. You've got to juggle your notes that you have in front of you. And you've got to juggle the Bible. Yeah? You're on board? Here we go. Okay. 
Now, one of the first things that you notice about the Psalms is that it's actually not just the book of Psalms, but it's a collection of five books. So as you look at Psalm 1, you see the big heading right on top, Book 1, yeah? And it's the first 41 Psalms, actually. And what I'm going to say about the first uh, book of Psalms is that the first two Psalms act like an introduction. It starts off, blessed is the man, and it finishes off in Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Right? It's sort of like a bracket, that's the introduction. But Psalm 3, to the end of the book, actually focuses very much on David. Now, 37 of those Psalms are actually titled the Psalms of David. And predominantly we hear David in trouble. So have a look at Psalm 3, right, in Psalm 3, verses, oh, let's have a look, Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, which is the first two verses. O Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me, many are saved of me, God will not deliver him. There's David in trouble. And that's what most of these psalms are about. And yet one of the things that you hear in these psalms, anticipated right back at the beginning in Psalm 2, is that David, the Lord's anointed, is going to be rescued from his enemies. And probably the classic one is Psalm 9. Have a look at that. Turn over a few pages. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Why? Well, he's a rescue. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted the cities. Even the memory of them are perished. What's book one about? Predominantly David. David in trouble. And the promise and the reality of salvation of David. That's book one. You see how we're going to move through 150 Psalms really quickly? Yeah? Okay, Psalm 2. Now, book 2. Book 2 starts off with the first seven Psalms being Psalms of the sons of Korah. They're songs of sons of Korah, who are just temple singers in David's time. And yet, what you'll notice is that the 18 Psalms that follow that are Psalms of David again. And some of those explicitly and specifically talk about David's life. And they trace through David's that the events of David's life. So it starts off in Psalm 51 with the adultery that, that David has with Bathsheba and his murder of, of her husband Uriah. That horrible incident, you know, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Uh, we know that really well. And as you read on, you actually trace through David's life. So that when you get to Psalm 71, we meet a really old man there. Now, the title actually doesn't say it's a Psalm of David. But I reckon if you read it, it just sounds like David in his old age. So have a look at Psalm 71, verse 9. Do not cast me away when I am old. This is David's life coming to an end. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone, for my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, O my God, to help me. And then Psalm 72, the next page, the next psalm, which closes off Psalm 2, seems to be David's prayer at the end of his life. And once again, look at the title there. It says the psalm of Solomon. You think, no, Solomon wrote that. But have a look at it. What is David's wish at the end of his life? Verse 1, And thou the king, who's going to be Solomon, with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness, he will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. And notice how it ends in verse 20. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. That's book one, 
that's book two. Now, you remember what happened in Solomon's time, don't you, though? It was great for a while, and then his descendants got into trouble. And you saw the nation of Israel split off into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom actually ended up getting destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom got destroyed by Babylon, taken off to the exile. They were terrible times. And so when you turn to the next book, book three, Psalm 73 really fits the context of Solomon's reign and what happened afterwards really well. Because there, in Psalm 73, it actually expresses the faith in God who makes these promises. And yet it also expresses the agony of holding on to those promises in the light of their real experience. What do you get? You sort of think, God, are you real? Can you make these promises when we're in exile? Can you really make these promises when the enemies are winning? So have a look at Psalm 74, verses 1 and 2, and you look at the troubles of Israel. Verse 1. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smoulder against the sheep of your pasture? These are God's chosen people. And yet, God doesn't seem to be fulfilling his promises. This, is, this seems tough. And it happens over and over again until you get into the last psalm of that book, Psalm 89. Some of the deepest questionings happen here. And you sort of look at Psalm 89 and the opening lines are the promises that God made to David and you think, woohoo, this is fantastic. And by the end, as you look at the conclusion, it's shattered. Have a look at uh, verse 38 of Psalm 89. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. Where is God? God, you're angry with us. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. Where are you, God? Uh, Have a look at verse 46, a really well-known phrase. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And the very last, at verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? God, where are you? You make these promises, and yet our experience is you've abandoned us. End of book three. So what do you expect in book four? We've read about the promises, yeah? We've read about David's life, and we've read about the suffering. What do you actually expect in book four? Well, one of the amazing things is, as you turn to book four in Psalm 90, you notice what it's called there? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And you sort of think, what's going on here? Why is it talking about Moses now? In fact, Moses' name actually occurs another six times in this block of Psalms. And I think what the collector of these Psalms is trying to do is to think, you want the solution to your problems and your suffering? Well, go back to the foundational realities of the people of Israel. That's what you need to do. Before there was a king, before there was a capital called Jerusalem, before there was a temple, before Israel even had a land, you know what you had? You have God who is the king. And so Psalm 93 to 99, they actually celebrate the one who was king before there was a king David. And after a time of king David. Have a look at Psalm 93, verse 1. Yeah? Who reigns? David? No. Yahweh, the Lord reigns. 
He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne has been established long ago. You are from all eternity. Let's get back to basics here. And the last two Psalms of Book 4, Psalm 105, they actually recount God's promises to Abraham. That's what they're about. They go through the history. These are the promises that you made to our forefathers. And in Psalm 106, it takes up that theme again, but then it goes through Israel's rebelliousness and actually looks at how God has saved them. And so the last Psalm in that book, Psalm 106, Book 4, it closes with these words. Verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nation, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You see that movement? And then as we turn to Book 5, it's really amazing because it sounds like that plea at the end of Book 4 seems to be answered. And so Psalm 107 begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those who redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from his land, from east and west, from north and south. Yea, your promises being answered, and you think, how does that happen? And then the next Psalms that you read, it's all about the, the Psalms of David again. And, and, and I know you haven't been following closely, but you know, we haven't heard from David since after Book 2. I think there's one Psalm of David in Book 3 and 4. But you actually haven't heard from David since book 2. And yet this time, when you read the Psalms of David, you see David as king right alongside God as king. Not just him individually, actually. Yet our questions aren't answered. We don't know how the pleas of book 4 actually answered, but there's one certainty. And that's Psalm 146 to the end. They all start with the Hebrew word, Alleluia, praise the Lord. What's the answer? How, how are the people going to be, their pleas going to be answered? I don't think you're going to find out until outside the book of Psalms. But that's a movement. It finishes off with Alleluia. Now, I'm going to say, I hope that's a helpful framework for you. That as you read the Psalms, you'll love them and you know where they fit and, and, and you know how they work and, 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 and literally how it works. But I think a lot of you might be still saying, oh, so what? Thanks so much, you know, give me a bit of context, blah, 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 right? So here's a little bit of a worked example, okay? So the first one we're going to look at is Psalm 1. So turn right back to the beginning again, Psalm 1. Um, and this is your classic two ways to live Psalm, right? It seems like there's two ways to live. You look at the first verse, blessed is a man. You look at the last verse of Psalm 1, the wicked will perish. And it offers two ways to live, right? So you can almost draw up a table like this if you really want to, right? You can define the man... Uh, who he is, he is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He soaks himself in God's word. He meditates on it day and night. And then the righteous one, well, what does he soak himself in? He soaks himself in the counsel of the wicked. He's influenced by wicked, whereas the blessed man is influenced by God's word. And you see the description there. The description of, of the one who's blessed is like a tree, planted tree, bearing fruit, not withering, prospering. And the unrighteous one, well, it's like waste products just being blown around in the wind. And there's some eternal consequences. It talks about the Lord watching over the way of the righteous. And yet on the other side, it's not standing in the judgment. Not standing, uh, no sinners standing in the assembly of the righteous. There's that church word again, by the way. So if you don't get how 
whether church is a destination or a means to an end or whether church is about heaven or now, you need to come to annual conference and register, right? But that, that's the concept there. And the wicked will perish. So I can easily end the talk here and say, well, here's a way of blessedness, is you meditating God's word. And so you must get yourself an outline to read the Bible daily. That's what it's about, actually. You, you soak yourself in God's word, read the Bible, discuss it, think about it, come to public meetings, and then you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, and the Lord will watch over you. And if you don't do that, you will perish. I think it's a little more, bit more complicated than that. So when we ask the question, who is the man, right, in Psalm? Remember one of the frameworks that I said? Think how to Psalm of Israel. So if I'm an Israelite and I'm reading the Bible, I'm thinking, hmm, you know what? As I read Moses, I, I remember him in Deuteronomy chapter 17, actually, talking about, or God telling him, how there's going to be a future king. And God commands him, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, the king, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests, two of the Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees. Does that sound like the man of Psalm 1? And as I read on, and I turn the pages, I come to Joshua. And I look at him and I think, what did God command him? You remember those lovely memory verses that we have from Sunday school? Be strong and courageous. Well, this is what it says. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the left or to the right, that you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate it on day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Does that, Joshua... If he did his thing, does that sound like the, psalm, the man of Psalm 1? And you remember David, the psalm that he wrote? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. How did he describe them? They're more precious than gold. Yeah, they're much fine gold. Sweeter than honey, even honey from the cone. That's how precious it is. Does that sound like the man from Psalm 1? You remember the prayer of David for Solomon's, Psalm 72? And, and this was David's charge to Solomon in 1 Kings. I'm about to go the, the way of the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man. Man up, Solomon, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you go. Does that sound like the man of Solomon? See, there was actually a time when the kings of Israel forgot the law. It was a terrible time that actually led to that destruction. Until a king called Josiah found it again. Not only was the leader not interested in the psalm, they lost the book. That's just ridiculous. Who is the man? Ultimately, it's the leader of Israel. The leader, the king of God's people. And with such a leader, then the people might be righteous and prosperous, then they might be verses 5 and 6. Our fortunes are tied up with the leaders. That's how it happens. But I think these psalms actually fit the Lord Jesus better than it ever fit David or the leader of Israel. Notice how someone finishes? Perishing. God actually sent his king so that no one may perish. Remember that verse? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Jesus is the one who didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sin, sit in the seat of mockers. He delighted in his Father's will so much that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, not withering. Remember his resurrection? There is no withering there. Look at it. Because he died for our sins, we will stand in the judgment. We will find ourselves in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over our way. We will not perish. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Psalm 2 is the other introductory one. It works like a screenplay. You know the opening credits in a movie? That's how it sort of works, actually. So you start off in the first three verses with the enemies. Why do the nations conspire? People plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather against the Lord. Here's cast number one, the enemies who are against the Lord. Secondly, we see the Lord, how he sees things. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's the next cast member. And then the third cast member in the next three verses, we see the anointed one, the Messiah, uh, God's king. And he calls him my son. Incredible honour. And he is going to rule with an iron scepter. And then fourthly actually finishes with the Psalms. And once again, if we go through the process and think, this is Israel's Psalm, well, what does that remind you of? Well, there were lots of enemies, weren't there? Moses had an enemy, the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he was the one who conspired against Moses. And remember Joshua? Well, Canaan plotted against Joshua. Plotted in vain, yeah, by all means, but plotted... And David had hostility shown to him. Remember Goliath, the Philistine? Yeah? And the next, verse, next four verses, when you see it from God's perspective, that makes sense too, doesn't it? You know how absurd it is, how stupid it is when Pharaoh stands against um, the, the God. And you know it was mad for the nations of Canaan to think that they could stand against the Lord of heaven and earth and Joshua. And Goliath was a real buffhead to think that he could beat David. It's just dumb. And you know what happened. You know the plagues that happened on Egypt. You know Jericho's walls tumbling down. You know that Goliath fell. God laughs at that. It's stupid. And then David talks about himself. How, what an extraordinary status he has. Being called the Lord's son. With unparalleled authority. Matched by unparalleled power. And so the conclusion, well, it's obvious really. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rules of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It makes sense. If God is behind the king, don't be stupid. And yet, one of the things that we learn and we can keep on seeing is that as these Psalms look forward, we look forward to a time in the New Testament we'll actually see Jesus fitting these psalms better than David. So the first three verses are actually quoted in Acts chapter 4. When the Christians had encountered opposition and persecution, they prayed a prayer and they said, Sovereign Lord, 
You have made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You spoke the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and father David. And they quote Psalm one, uh, Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But that's exactly what happened. Herod and Pontius Pilate did meet together and conspire. The nations did get together and conspire against your holy servant Jesus, your anointed they were hostile against you. So hostile that the, the climax of that hostility came in Jesus' death. Why do they do that? The psalm does. Why do they do that? They pray. Well, it's all been a part of a pattern, actually. The world against God's anointed. That's what's happened. And verses 4 to 6 remind us of the stupidity of that hostility from God's perspective. So 1 Corinthians 1.20 can say, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's what it seems like to God. It's, it's puny fist-shaking at the God of the heavens and the earth. And yet that third section of the Psalms is probably the best quoted, or the most quoted, in the New Testament. We see it in the baptism of Jesus, don't we? The heavens opening and the voice saying, you are my son. At the transfiguration, we hear that, don't we? This is my son. In fact, the gospel of the New Testament can be summarised by Paul in Romans 1.4. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's underlined in Acts chapter 13 when we hear this. We tell you the gospel, the good news. What God has promised our forefathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, and it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And this son has been given unparalleled authority. You remember the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. And you remember what happened at the resurrection? That he's declared with power to be judge of the earth. Three times in the book of Revelation, the phrase I am scepter is linked with Jesus. That's how he's going to rule, with all power and authority, and all his enemies are going to be crushed. His authority is matched by his power. When we say Jesus Christ, it's not so that you can go to your iPhone and find Jesus between Chan and Cal or something. Christ is a title. He's Messiah. He's the chosen one. And when we say Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. You want to hear these lyrics that change the world? At least you want to hear the chorus that comes through? Here's the chorus. Jesus is the Messiah of the Psalms. He's the king. He's the one who's going to rule. See, if Jesus is the king, then EU's second object makes a lot of sense that we should submit every aspect of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I don't need to tell you, read the Bible, because Psalm 2 says so. I need to say, Jesus is your king. And if you are a subject of the king, if you are a servant of the king, will you not meditate on his word? Do you feel that difference? It's not just pull up your socks and try harder stuff. We're confronted with the king here. And yet the warning is stuck. 
Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, the struggle is really between the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and those who won't take him as their Lord and their Saviour and their ruler. That's the struggle. But you know what? According to the Psalms, the outcome is going to be clear. The Lord wins. Those who are against him will be crushed. The only question is, are you going to be wise or are you going to be foolish? Which one are you?